From modified living spaces across Metro Detroit, this is Beeple People, a podcast created and inspired by the staff at the Baldwin Public Library in Birmingham, Michigan. In this episode, we'll be talking to internationally renowned fashion designer and avid Idea Lab user, Sandia Gard. What inspires her designs? How did she get her start in fashion? What was it like being a contestant on Project Runway? And you'll hear film and television reviews from Ethan. I'm Ethan. Cynthia. I'm Cynthia. And H. I'm H. And I'm your friendly producer, Jeff. And now H is here to tell you more about today's episode. This week, we're going to discuss Canopy. Canopy is a film and television streaming service that is available to patrons with their library card. Canopy has a lot of independent and classic films, art house and documentary films, as well as some television programming. The content is heavily geared towards adults, but there's also a robust selection of content for younger kids. Previously, when I've used Canopy, I was trying to access the kid content because they had PBS Kids material that I couldn't find anywhere else. The other nice thing about Canopy Kids is that it's unlimited access. Most of Canopy works on a credit system where you get a set number of credits at the beginning of the month and each film or episode counts toward your credits. FYI, the credits don't roll over. In Canopy Kids, your little people can keep hitting play and it won't count against your monthly allotment of credits. Instead of my usual canopy diet of PBS Kids in Weston Woods. Oh, uh, wait, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt. Weston Woods? Uh, what is that? So Weston Woods are classic children's picture books that have been adapted into short animated pieces. Oh, got it. Okay. So instead of that, I decided to watch two documentaries and a feature film this month. After watching the movies, here's my thoughts about canopy overall and about those pieces individually. The content on Canopy is very different from what you get from other streaming services. Netflix, Hulu, and Prime all have very different aims with their service. Netflix wants you to find their original programming so compelling that you're willing to pay for it. It's really slick and fast paced, so you stay highly invested. Hulu has a similar objective, and Prime content seems to understand that people see the streaming service as a free bonus, so they're almost good. It's the kind of thing where you can always see the seams. It could definitely be better. Canopy's content is almost the opposite of what these services are doing. They have to present content that people really want to take advantage of for educational purposes and for entertainment purposes. The unifying factor of the adult media is that they are passion projects. The films that Canopy is providing are love letters that the filmmakers are putting out for the world. And now, here's Cynthia to tell us what she watched on Canopy. So I'd like to highlight some great kids content that Canopy has. The first thing I want to talk about is Zaboomafoo. If you have kids that love animals, you might have heard of Martin and Chris Kratt and their animated show Wild Kratts. But what you might not have heard of is their previous show, Zaboomafoo. Zaboomafoo aired on PBS 20 years ago and is now available to stream on Canopy. 
Zabumafu takes place in Animal Junction, where the Krat brothers and their lemur Zabu meet to learn about and care for a variety of animals. It's a great show that mixes real animal encounters with puppets and claymation shorts. Another show that Canopy has for streaming is called Wibbly Pig. Mick Inkpen, author of the Kipper series, also came up with Wibbly Pig. If I had to sum this series up in one word, it would be sweet. It has cute animation, a little bit of hide and seek, songs, it's full of imagination, and accents from across the pond. Wibbly Pig is a perfect show for toddlers. And H mentioned Weston Woods earlier, and I'm here to tell you about three great picture books that they've turned into videos, coincidentally featuring bears, that you can watch on Canopy. There are so many amazing picture books with bears. We could be here all day, but here are some of the best. Mother Bruce by Ryan T. Higgins. This is a delightful story of a bear named Bruce who grudgingly becomes a parent to some goslings. Then there's Children Make Terrible Pets by Peter Brown. In Children Make Terrible Pets, a bear playing in the forest finds a child and decides to bring him home as a pet. The child won't be any trouble, Mom, I promise! That can't possibly go wrong, now can it? I Want My Hat Back by John Clausen. If you've ever read anything by Clausen, then you know he has a wonderful sense of humor, which is very apparent in this story of a bear who has lost his hat and is trying so hard to find it. He asks questions of the animals he meets along the way until a memory is sparked. And I won't tell you more. You'll have to watch the video or read the book to see how it ends. You know, Cynthia, I had totally forgotten about the wild crats. My my kids had a, a phase where they were obsessed with that show, and there's a, a there was a villain on the show that had the most annoying voice. He had like a really whiny, high pitched voice, and it used to just make me crazy listening to him. Yeah, I have many a night where I can remember being up, watching wild crats, waiting for people to go back to sleep. It's like it's three. It's three. Can we just can we just turn this off and and go back to sleep now? We don't really need to hear wild, wild, wild crats. Well, this isn't a very original observation. I've heard a lot of other people point this out, but the other funny thing about that show was that they'd have the live action segments where you could see that the the crap brothers at that point in their career were you know in middle <laughs> age they were they were showing it a little bit and then in the animated segments they were running and jumping and they they looked like they were about 20 years old it was it was always <laughs> kind of funny to me how they had flattered themselves in the, the animation oh yeah i mean they're they're really tiny in the animated version too yeah. I, <laughs> joel and i had that conversation recently about al pacino you know he's in that TV show Hunters on Amazon, and he's running around, hiding behind cars in shootouts. And I'm like, isn't Al Pacino in his 80s? This just kind of, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they're pushing the limits of plausible reality here. They built a really accurate Al Pacino suit. And there's actually like a 23 year old stunt double in this really perfect silicone rubber Al Pacino suit. 
I feel like that's what how the next Indiana Jones is gonna be. Like they're making a new Indiana Jones, and Harrison Ford is old. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. Are they really? Yes. Oh no. Oh no. It's you know some, sometimes you just gotta like leave it alone. Come up with something new. Yeah, put it down. Well, you know, in the horrible Crystal Skull movie, they kind of passed the hat to Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. So oh. maybe they're just going to make it all about him. But He'll he be was, the new. That was terrible. That was the yeah. worst Indiana Jones movie of all of them. Yeah, I prefer not to acknowledge its existence. <laughs> <laughs> just pretend it never happened. Yeah, I really like all three of the Indiana Jones <laughs> movies. They're all great. There isn't a single bad one among the three that they made. <laughs> And now, H is here to talk about Canopy Documentaries. Take it away, H! As I mentioned, I saw two documentaries and a feature film. The first documentary is called From Flint, Voices of a Poisoned City. It's short, running at about 40 minutes, and tells the story of the water crisis and the people and organizations that have come together to deal with the devastation. The filmmakers interview a variety of people touched by the situation while also telling the story of a government-created crisis and the suffering and lack of clear direction in fixing a problem that really didn't have to happen. The first reportings of a problem began in 2014, and six years have gone by with the people of Flint still waiting for a true fix. The second documentary that I saw was just a little bit shorter at half an hour, and it's called Lifeboat, Fighting to Help Libyan Refugees. It's about the catastrophe of lives lost and the attempts of refugees crossing the Mediterranean. The film follows the crew of a rescue boat as they try to save refugees who are desperate to cross from war-torn parts of Africa and the Middle East into Europe. I chose these documentaries with intention. Part of the reason Michigan has been so hard hit in the COVID-19 pandemic is a result of complications in clean and safe water security. Detroiters experienced shutoffs as a result of not being able to pay high water bills, and in Flint, the water is not safe to use, posing a dilemma to residents. Do you attempt to prevent a deadly illness by washing your hands in water that can leave you with rashes or worse because it hasn't been treated properly? As dire and terrifying as that decision would be in Michigan, there is still bottled water. Many refugee camps around the world don't have easy and consistent access to water. I know that things are really hard here, but I felt it was my responsibility to hear from the people whose lives are in far more danger than my own just because they don't have or they can't get to clean and safe water. Both documentaries were heartbreakers and I really needed a lift after watching them. This led me to choose Suicide Kale as my feature film. In Suicide Kale, a new couple is on a double date with a far more established couple and the expectations and surprises that can happen when you spend an afternoon with people you don't know well and people you don't know as well as you think you do. It was fun and lighthearted, and I really want the set designer to come to my house and make it look like the house that they used for the film. And now, here's Ethan! This week... I'm going to recommend a movie 
that's more than five hours long. With so many of us sheltering at home and so many of our public spaces closed, we sometimes feel frustrated that we can't do all the things we normally would. But there's a more constructive way to look at it. We can do all sorts of things that we normally wouldn't. We can bake some bread, finish some jigsaw puzzles, and maybe spend a few hours indulging in an epic work of cinematic art. Happy Hour is a 2015 drama by Japanese director Ryosuke Yamaguchi. It tells the story of four middle-aged women who share a very close friendship. One nice thing about the length of this film is that you get to know these characters very well. You see them at their jobs, you see them at home with their families, and you see all the challenges and obstacles they have to deal with. You also see them on those special occasions when the four friends get together to enjoy an outing. Because you have such a close familiarity with these characters' everyday lives, you know just how crucial it is that they have these opportunities to give each other comfort and support. This is a story that we can all understand and appreciate. And it's the kind of story that we're used to seeing in a movie. So despite its great length, Happy Hour never seems pretentious or intimidating. It's all about the ease and familiarity of time spent with old friends. That said, the extra time does allow for some unusual storytelling techniques. A scene will linger until you start to feel as if you're really there. You're often permitted to take a break from the plot in order to enjoy a good conversation. You'll spend hours getting to know a character and then suddenly see them do something that completely changes your understanding. Many of the film's most powerful moments are only possible because of the great investment of time. One of these moments takes place just half an hour into the film when the four friends participate in a workshop at their local community center. The workshop is led by Ukai, an unusual artist who specializes in balancing objects on end. He explains that he has become bored with this technique and now wants to extend his study of balance to what he calls unconventional ways to communicate with others. He then leads the workshop participants through an increasingly intimate series of physical techniques for connecting with their own center of balance and that of their fellow participants. The average movie would only be able to show a few highlights, but Happy Hour allows us to experience the entire workshop from start to finish. We're there for the full 30 minutes, searching for balance with the film's characters. It's strange and uncomfortable for everyone involved, but ultimately quite illuminating. And because we were there to see it all, we're able to recognize how this workshop reverberates through the lives of the four friends over the course of the film's remaining hours. Ukai's workshop is one of a kind, but I can draw a few comparisons. It's a little like practicing yoga with a partner, or learning a very abstract martial art. It's also a lot like an acting class, and this leads to an interesting line of thought. Happy Hour grew out of a workshop for novice actors led by director Yamaguchi, and many of that workshop's participants appear in the film. As I watched this scene, I couldn't help but wonder about the parallels between the two workshops, or between the director and the enigmatic Ukai. 
Ukai has another parallel in Yamaguchi's 2018 film, Asako 1 and 2. This film tells the story of Asako, a young woman who falls in love with two men. First, the mysterious drifter Baku, then, the affable businessman Yohai. While the two men are different in almost every other way, they look completely identical. At the center of this story is Asako and her struggle with this shocking coincidence. But it's Baku who continued to haunt me long after the final credits. A free spirit to the point of sociopathy, he wanders serenely through life, completely oblivious to the destruction in his wake. And while all this should be repellent, it somehow gives him a strange allure. It's a type we've all encountered, and one that seems to fascinate Yamaguchi. There's a similar charm in the aimless balancing act of Happy Hours Ukai. I happened upon Asako 1 and 2 while looking through the selections on Canopy and was immediately drawn into this unlikely yet compelling tale. As soon as it ended, I was eagerly searching Canopy for more of the director's work. I was initially excited to find Happy Hour, then shocked to see that it ran more than five hours. My first thought was that I had no time for such a film. Then it hit me. Why not? I had nowhere to be. This movie could very well be the best possible use of that time. Over the past couple of months, we've had to do things very differently, and it's given us a fresh perspective on our usual lives. We've been pushed to think about why we live the way we do, and whether there might be a better, safer, more fulfilling way to do things. Watching Happy Hour, I was pushed to think about our usual expectations for movies. Why do we assume that a story will fall into a standard length? Why is it so rare for us to see a film with a more generous runtime? It has a lot to do with the economics of movie theaters, with finding the most profitable schedule for herding us in and out of our seats. And it has a lot to do with the hectic way we lead our lives. As we run from one thing to another, the time we have to give a film is limited. But now, with all those factors stripped away, I'm free to spend a long evening in the good company of a film. And I realize just how much we've been missing. It's an amazing review. Like, it's yeah, really, it really, really great. good.、Um, I love your point about how, you know, probably the reason why movies have the runtime they do is just because, yeah, you can, keep, you can get more people in and out of the theater. Right. Yeah, I kind of feel like a cow now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go to the movies. <laughs> All right. Today on Beeple People, we'll be interviewing Sandhya Garg. Sandhya is an internationally renowned fashion designer. She's studied fashion in India and England in design studios such as Alexander McQueen, Alice Temperley, Ismailova, and Gucci. Sandhya has been busy over the past few years. She's built her own fashion line, been a contestant on Project Runway, and had a child. Her work is small batch and ethically made with personally designed prints. Sandhya, thank you so much for coming on today and welcome to Beeple People. 
So Jeff suggested asking you to be on the show today because you're a regular user of the library's makerspace. So I'm going to have him ask a couple questions. Sure. Yes, obviously. You're a familiar face around the Idea Lab. <laughs> Suffice to say, you've been in there a time or two. I, I think I've used all your machines. <laughs> yes, yes, you have. Uh, yeah, actually, you. Uh, we have a lot of machines in the Idea Lab, and you've used basically all of them at some point or other. <laughs> but you know, we while we have a lot of equipment in there, there's still a lot that we don't have. So I'm curious, what are your like dream machines, what equipment that exists anywhere in the world, what equipment do you wish that you had access to? Oh, wow. Uh, it's kind of really hard to think. Probably, you know, like stuff, machines that I can make bags and shoes and, you know, stitch leather. So, you know, kind of heavy machines like those or just have like two extremely skilled craftspeople who yeah. would make anything I tell them. The best machines, <laughs> ultimately. The human machine. So like pixies or something like elves? <laughs> okay, yeah. The little cobbler elves that come out at night and help finish uh, your projects. Yeah, I mean, you you have pretty much uh, uh, really amazing machines, but uh, I, I guess I get more ideas when I'm working there. Yeah, it's an yeah. inspiring place. <laughs> So in the lab, you have made some pretty interesting things from a wide range of materials. And I especially love your 3D printed earrings with the little detached segments printed on tulle, which is great. It gives it an awesome, you know, flexible, almost armor-like quality. So what are your favorite materials to work with? If you could make items from any material in the universe, what materials would you choose? Uh, I, I think I love to work with wood or marble, you know, they're so interesting to work with. And it's actually very exciting to see how we can work with wood or um, marble filaments in the 3D printer. So that's exciting to me too. But if I could work with it, I mean, it's, everything is so exciting, you know. It's I just, feel the same way. Yeah, it's so hard to just pick one. You know, combining things and then just making something new. It's such an exciting uh, process and once you start working with things and making them into you know something that you want them to be it's just really hard to pick one material to work with that's that if i were posed with that question i feel like that's i'd have the same trouble coming up with just one <laughs> it's like there's too many options so how did you originally find out about the idea lab so while i was in boston massachusetts there was a place called fabville in somerville which was a big maker space and they had you know 3d printing and coding classes so um, i ended up working with them and making this huge chainmail jacket which i showed uh, jeff oh yeah i got to try it on printed. so you know i was just uh, you know here in michigan and i was like i need to do some 3d printing and i need to find a maker space because you know it's a different thing when you are actually in that space working with people and creating something new, uh, like, you know, instead of just going and approaching a business to make some stuff for you. So uh, then I Googled you and you were the first place to pop up. And, you know, it seemed like the perfect, perfect place to go see things, do things, make things. And then, you know, I came to the Idea Lab and Jeff was so great, is so great. You know, it's, it's an amazing space to work and I have thoroughly enjoyed each and every second of being there and I've made so many things in Idea Lab. So yeah, I found you online and you are probably on the first or second Google listing when you do 3D printing makerspace 
Detroit, awesome. Michigan. <laughs> somebody, somebody did some search engine optimization yeah. for us or something yeah. like that. The algorithm is working in our favor. Yes. Thanks, algorithm. <laughs> Shout out to the algorithm. So, Santia, you've been designing for many years. What Can you tell us what the greatest challenge has been in establishing your work? Um, so I would say at any given point, it's a different challenge. Initially, the challenge was just getting stuff made and getting good quality uh, made. So, you know, finding the right craftspeople. Then sometimes the struggle is also finding that inspiration and getting the right product and having the whole, you know, visualization of how things are going to look like. Um, then sometimes it's your own website and how to sell things. And I, I would say, you know the the struggle or the challenges are ongoing and figuring out the solutions are also ongoing so it keeps changing okay that's that's interesting to think about in terms of um it well it brings me to my next question actually which was if you would mind telling us about how you create your own prints that seemed like something that you are really good at doing and then where do you source your textiles and materials so all the textiles you see are my own. I make my own fabric. I hand draw, paint my own fabric. I, I photograph wherever I go. So so all my prints are um, inspired from magic of a city. You know, whenever you go travel, you're so inspired by a place. I'll give you an example. Um, there's a city in India called Jaipur. Uh, it, uh, it is a royal uh, city. It has beautiful architecture. The city itself has amazing craft, textile, thousands of years old history. And, you know, just, just being there, looking at the architecture, you can't even encapsulate. There is so much uh, to the city itself. So, you know, the whole magic that, the, that you feel, the folklore, the stories you hear, that kind of inspire all of us in some ways. So I kind of try to capture that through a print. Then I... Then I draw, you know, use photographs, uh, work on uh, uh, CAD, computer-aided softwares, Photoshop, Illustrator, all of it. And then I make my print. Then I get those prints uh, printed, digitally printed on fabrics. And that's, that's how I make my own textiles. And then I make dresses. So everything is super, super unique and one of a kind. And... Um, it's it's uh, an amazing process to go through. It's really like each I know each one of my pieces. So, given that your um, given that your designs are so heavily inspired by your travels, can you give us a couple of cities that you found the most inspirational? I suppose. Oh my God, <laughs> there's so many places. Uh, so I did one collection based on a Mulfi coast. Uh, oh, I could just go like drop everything and go live in a Mulfi. Such a beautiful coast. Uh, you know, there's Sorrento, Positano, Ravello, you know, just, just being in that coast is so exciting. And they hand paint these ceramics. So it's famous for hand painted ceramics and this whole Mediterranean feel. So, the, so that is very inspiring. Then if you go to Positano, it's a vertical town. So you'll just see these vertical houses stacked on each other from a distance. So that whole visual imagery is so inspiring. The food, the it's famous for its lemon and limoncello and food, olives. So there are restaurants that are like full of lemons and you know you can actually just sit in there and eat. So it's it's just so inspiring. That was one of the inspiration. Then on one of my trips, I went to Mexico City. I did not know Mexico City is as exciting as it was. Uh, we went to uh, 
Frida Kahlo's uh, Casa Azul. I, I spent a whole day in Casa Azul. It's beautiful. Electric blue colored house with so much art, culture, and history. And you know, Frida Kahlo in herself is so inspiring. Uh, what a painter, what a woman, what a life lived. And uh, you read about things she said or whatever she went through. You know, so much pain, but yet she found inspiration and, you know, she just lived beyond her own physical self. So these stories are so inspiring. And Mexico City in itself had such beautiful architecture. We saw the pyramids. Uh, uh, I My lifelong dream is to also see the Egyptian pyramids, but Mexican pyramids are no less. Uh, so we, I have seen Chichen Itza as well. And then... Uh, What's, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> so those pyramids, you know, the whole complex is amazing. And then you do get to do these balloon rides where you sit in a hot air balloon early morning. We didn't do that. But you can actually see those pyramids uh, with an aerial view. So, you know, it's, it's so exciting. All these cities have so much uh, to them and people who make them special as well. So it's it's actually people who've made these places special with their art, with their stories, with their architecture, with what they have left behind or, you know, and how they inspired the future. So it's, it's, just, it's just so exciting. And I, I was just telling my husband, there's so many adventures to still have, you know, to do. It's, there's so much in this world to see and do. There is a lot of planet Earth. <laughs> An, and then an our, inexhaustible uh, source oh, yeah. of inspiration. <laughs> and then and then our own uh, you know way of how we look at things, how we kind of you know observe them, absorb them, and then tell our stories of how we view them. So it's 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 exciting how each one of us has so much to say and do and tell. I love the idea of given what I've seen of your work, the idea of you spending time in Frida Kahlo's house where it's just all this color and light. And I, it, it feels like a perfect place for someone who seems to see the world in the way that your art represents you, I guess. It seems really cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure she inspires. So many people walk through her house every day and I'm sure she inspires all of them. So, I wanted to know, how, as a designer, how do you feel about um, fast fashion, especially considering the fact that so much of your clothing is small batch and handmade and very unique and individualistic? Honestly, I'm not a big fan of fast fashion. I, I was a consumer, I would not lie, but I never treated it as fast fashion during my college days when I did not have a lot of money to spend or I didn't even knew you know, what it meant to wear that $10 top or the $20 trouser. I always treated my fast fashion clothing also slow fashion. I wore it for as long as I could and I did, you know, keep my, I do keep my things for longer and then pass them on. So um, I'm not a big fan of fast fashion and it's actually going out of fashion now. A lot of people prefer to buy, you know, more sustainable uh, clothing. And uh, over the time, you realize it's better to buy that one dress that is going to last you for four years. And every time you wear it, you will feel so much, you know, so much more happier and special than wearing that one junk T-shirt that you might just wear for like five times. And you would also feel cheap because, you know, it's cheap and you know, it does not give you any confidence 
also when you wear it so that's how i feel about fast fashion now i would rather buy five good things that that make me feel happy and i connect to rather than 50 trashy things that are fast fashion i keep a list on my phone of um uh different manufacturers of handmade clothing from the era at the area historically so that whenever i'm out at the thrift store i know what to keep my eyes open for because that's the only way that i have access to what you might call slow fashion you know like the, the yeah. stuff the <laughs> stuff that's made to last is by getting the 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 items that have been discarded by the people who bought them originally but it works out yeah I mean out. I I think everyone should do slow or ethical fashion at their own pace with their own understanding. Um I'm you know I'm all about live and let live. So whatever floats your boat if how how much ever you're comfortable doing that's that's great. Well, since we've we've talked about fast fashion when you're purchasing brands and styles, what do you reach for? who who's who's a label that you consistently go and think okay i know if i if i purchase this if i invest in this it's going to hold up it's going to last it's going to look good on me for a while so i wear a lot of my own clothing because you know it's comfortable it's um, it's easy it's stylish and you know it's just so much fun so that's one of the things i do and i um uh I do get I still do wear some Zara but then when I say Zara I wear the the good quality the organic cotton which they have started doing now not the cheaper stuff so I do get a lot of Zara too and then who else I mean I tend to buy a lot of you know pure cottons and uh, and you know stuff that I know is going to wash well and it's probably going to age a lot better and uh, it's so hard to kind of remember all these brands <laughs> actually i have a i have a a mom question for you which sure um before I, there were people in my house i i uh i bought kind of nicer clothing and then i realized well you know this is this is probably going to get damp in some way or another um have you noticed that your your purchasing choices or your design choices have changed since you've uh since you've be become a mom? Yeah, I mean I was um, kind of someone who would wear adventurous clothes or you know a little skimpier clothes and now after being a mom I've become a lot modest in my clothing choices. I wouldn't say the the value of the you know of the product has changed but mm -hmm. but the style has you know okay. i'm i'm more happy with something with sleeves you know something longer so i've started appreciating a little bit of uh, fashion on the modest side but now my kids are 3 and a half so you know i'm like hey i'm pretty <laughs> i need to utilize my life <laughs> but yeah but but i wear a lot of color and um, and that's that's not changed but yeah i, I agree cuz you know things tend to get dirty and i wouldn't uh wear a lot of nicer things when my kid was uh, a baby but not so much now i was just going to say longer longer skirts are definitely essential when you need to get on the floor yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then nice pants that you know they're just comfortable but practical 
Can you tell us about some of your greatest design influences and maybe a brand or someone you know or knew who always caught your eye? Uh, I mean, the first name that comes to my mind is Alexander McQueen. I saw him when he was alive. Uh, he actually died while I was uh, in the, I was interning at Alexander McQueen. So he actually died uh, while I was there. So he would always be an influence. And uh, I, I did not speak to him, but I did, you know, see him working. And, um, and you know, what a life, what an amazing, creative human being, uh, a legend, to be honest. And then the Sarah Burton, the design head at Alexander McQueen now, even she's very inspiring, beautiful uh, lady, wonderful designer, extremely talented. So those two people I would say are extremely inspiring to me as designers. Then one of the brands that I'm a big fan of, uh, including the story, it's Lily Pulitzer. So coming to US, I love Lily Pulitzer. Uh, she has a wonderful story. The product is amazing. And I'm actually, sorry, that's one brand that I really buy a lot of, except my own. <laughs> I have a ton of Lily Pulitzer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, bright colors, bright patterns uh, started off uh, on a citrus juice stand uh, in Florida. Super, super exciting. Yeah. So it- her, yeah. Watching the the first episode, I very much, um, well, I'm going to have two things that I'm going to bring up. The one is that, you know, 20 years ago when the Style Channel first started, it was mostly runway shows. And like I said, I'm not somebody who watches, who knows much about fashion, but I did really enjoy watching the runway shows. And your um, your first dress seemed so reminiscent of an Alexander McQueen style where it was, um, I mean, it's really well executed and flirty and fun, but it also has kind of a, um, a toughness to it that I found really impressive and this great kind of uh, mix of this really girly and sweet pattern, but then you've got the, the shoulders that were exposed. I, I I was really impressed by that. And when you think of McQueen, you don't really think of necessarily approachable everyday wear. How did, how did that time studying with McQueen or in the, in that house, how did that time affect your style? What was, what would you say the changes were going into or coming out of that experience? Oh, I so the time that I spent there was like extremely, extremely, uh, you know, it was really dense in terms of learning. Because when you look at a dress on the runway, you know, you're like, oh, you know, it's just too much or it's not wearable. But you don't really appreciate the quality and the worksmanship and the, you know, the thought process behind it. You know, everything need not be something you put on and go grab lunch in. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not art. That's not fashion. It, if you were if art was all about just consumption then you would lose inspiration you would lose the surrealism or you know the larger than life aspect of art and similarly in fashion you know there is this surrealistic aspect the larger than life aspect when where everything is not about just you know putting on a dress and watching tv in your house or putting on a, your dress and doing dishes that that's that's not fashion you know a consume you know consuming fashion is very different from a runway show or you know 
doing fashion at a level where you're inspiring or telling a story mm-hmm. so that with that being said the craftsmanship at alexander mcqueen the quality is out of this world i mean i can't even express in in uh, regular words the kind of work that i saw there the the whole world uh, that i was exposed to of um, intricate embroideries that were done in india mind you you know his embroideries were done in india mm-hmm. and the the kind of uh, designs they would make the the kind of newness they would bring to the table the amount of research you know every day we were doing 20 big boards of inspiration of research you know to find that one design to find that one new drape for mcqueen to work on so you know that's that's just just pure fashion design the the what you learn when you're in a fashion school but is lost when you go and work for a corporate or a retail company where fashion is all about consumption so okay. i i would say i was in my true element it was it was like you know you're in a you know like a five year put a five year old in a candy store <laughs> put, put that was your candy store <laughs> that that was my candy store cool. and uh, he would have the you know the lady gaga shoes yes the armadillo shoes yeah the the armadillo shoes and the jacket in the iridescent sequin sequin mm-hmm. dresses and neoprene and oh my god oh my god oh that that is what dreams are made of i would say so <laughs> it was amazing well i had to look up armadillo shoes just now lady gaga armadillo because i didn't know what that was i just looked it up and <laughs> holy cow and it you know it makes me think something that i've thought before which is that runway fashion and and you know practical clothing the sort of clothing you would wear on the day to day versus r- what i consider to be runway fashion i've always thought of that more as like almost a form of sculpture you know yeah. it's pure expression and practicality you know it's not about being practical it's yeah. about uh it's 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 art it's true art and you definitely see that in something like the armadillo shoes I mean I did try on those shoes they are extremely uncomfortable and <laughs> way prettier they it looks like you need lessons in 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 walking in these shoes special lessons just to navigate a straight line with these shoes on but you know so so exciting and I'm sure if you speak to the models who did walk in his runway shows uh it was an experience for even that you know them and to be able to see such art It's incredible. Now, I heard at some point you mentioned that you were a a big TV watcher. Are there any shows that you watch now mostly to see what are what are they going to wear today? What are they going to bring out today? I want to see where they're taking this. I I think in terms of um costume design for like television shows or or mm-hmm. movies, something that has stayed with me is Crimson Peak. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I'm not familiar they, with it. They that. had beautiful costume in that movie, amazing costume. But uh uh I'm not like in terms of designer fashion uh, my philosophy keeps changing with trends. So I can't really remember one. I did find Sex and the City exciting okay. for you know the whole styling and the bohemian flair. But uh I would say um also that movie with the uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in it uh which is based on a book the oh, great expectations oh yeah classic i thought i thought she looked so good and the way the movie was styled was amazing like visually stunning 
You're adding to my list. I have a list of things that I have to watch. And so now I'm going to check out Crimson Peak and Great Expectations. So, uh, but I, but, but TV shows I watch for, you know, how stimulating they are for my mind. So uh, I, something that comes to my mind is Freud from Netflix. Interesting series to watch or even Hannibal, the series. <laughs> not, not to be too dark about it, but I really enjoy how, how artistically they showed dead bodies. I don't know if you've seen Hannibal. <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite disturbingly beautiful, to put it in words. <laughs> Can you walk us through the process of creating a piece from concept to customer? So how, how it works is I create my fabrics and then, you know, I kind of... Uh, uh, in computer softwares, I put them on various clothing dresses to see the placement. And then uh, I start sketching my designs. And then, you know, I do a lot of designing and then I pick the, the few that kind of speak to me. And then we go on and sample them and see how the dress is looking and, you know, then make more pieces in it and then do a photo shoot. So it's a very long process that is a few months. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty like, that's the standard process of designing a collection. But a lot of it is done uh, here in US where I design it. And then I work with my um, design team in India where we make the piece. And so I noticed that your collection doesn't currently include footwear. Can you tell us about your favorite style of shoe and where you like to shop for shoes? I would say I love uh, Fendi shoes. So, but anything that's comfortable, I have everything from Skechers to Fendi to Nike. Uh, but, you know, I think I'm going to go and start getting some Valentino shoes. So anything that's interesting to look at. Ooh. <laughs> After some time, you kind of forget comfort. But when you're, mo when you're a mom, Skechers work great. So <laughs> I still put on my Skechers today and took my kid to the playground. So... I'm here to talk about Project Runway. I love Project Runway. I have watched every season. I've watched All Stars. I just, it's so amazing that we are actually getting to talk to you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the dress that you showed on the very first episode where you guys were auditioning and Zach Posen called this dress traditional and subversive and it just seemed really, really interesting. Was it the first challenge dress that you're asking about? Not the first challenge dress, when you were oh, auditioning. The, the middle finger print? Dress? Yes. Yeah. So that is actually, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I went to London College of Fashion in UK and it was my graduation collection and uh, it was uh, inspired. So, you know, in India, we, it's, it's, you know, a man's world in India as well. And women are not treating, uh, treated very well. And it depends uh, from every state. There's actually a very uh, uh, high rate of, uh, what do you say, fetus infanticide. So, you know, if they get to know that uh, a woman is pregnant with a girl, they would abort the kid, the, the baby girl, or even, um, and it's, I'm not super proud of this, like even now, if, you get, if a baby girl is born, they kill the baby. Uh, and it is prevalent in certain states in India. 
and uh, so and th- there are some of these uh, rituals that you know were in the past but some of them still happen like there is this ritual called sati in which a woman if she's widowed and her husband dies and in india we cremate people so you know once you're dead they they burn you on a funeral pyre so so the widow would actually uh, cremate herself alive with in her husband's funeral pyre and that was called sati and um, which it was very prevalent in the state of rajasthan in india so so the whole collection was inspired from this thought that you know you know you need to stop forcing women into doing things into taking their own life and you know it was about uh, giving the middle finger to men or to the society in general for for such treatment so the collection featured a uh, mild abusive language it just said ullu ka patta which means son of an owl it's like a light abusive phrase and middle finger print but the middle finger print uh, also had the middle finger also had like henna on the hands and and having henna on hands is something traditional so you know it was you, it's and you know when you kind of question tradition it's like oh you're modern you're way too modern for the society but that's not true you know this is basic human rights you don't you don't have to be rebellious to stand against uh, tradition that has no place in a human society so the whole collection was about that so that's why he was like you know it's um, traditional yet it's kind of rebellious in its own way so that was the inspiration and and what the collection spoke about um another thing that we kind of bit hit on a little bit earlier is um your bright colors like talked with h a little bit um do you think that possibly some of the other designers were intimidated i mean you won the first challenge you won the third challenge your colors were bright and bold and beautiful and the other designers just kept bringing so much black uh i i mean i would i would uh, not discount anyone's feelings i think they were you know right to feel the way they they felt i would also feel the same way you know if someone else was winning or doing well and came from a different cultural background i to be honest i was fresh off the boat when i was in project runway i had just come here from india and this was the first time i was in us i was totally culturally uh, you know unaware of you how people in us perceive fashion of course we had seen stuff on television i had seen sex and the city a ton of times but you know that's not the the true <laughs> nature of how fashion is perceived so uh they they did not understand where i came from or what my uh, experience was or what my references were which is which i can totally see now that why they didn't and if someone else was winning you know even i would feel uh, jealous or i would question why were they winning uh if their aesthetic was way different uh from what my aesthetic was so I would say that that was the reason. And how long did it actually take to film the season? It's about 5 to 6 weeks. Uh it's day after day, so you are sleep deprived. <laughs> Except for being crazy. <laughs> I I know that you have to be sleep deprived. I mean, not leaving the workroom until midnight. Sometimes you're waking up at 4 a.m. Oh, we sure. we wake up we, we would wake up every day at about 4 or 5 a.m. 
Ooh. I'm sure that was exhausting. It was exhausting, but honestly, I was high on adrenaline. It was exciting. It was really exciting to be on the show. And uh, the production works harder than we do. And kudos to them. Amazing, amazing people. Um, I'm still in touch, still friends with uh, a lot of Project Runway family. And amazing production team. That's so great, because that was actually one of my questions. If you were in, still in touch with... Um, you know, some of the other contestants or Tim Gunn, who seems like a lovely person. Uh, do you want to expand on that any? Or? I mean, I honestly, Tim, Tim Gunn's a star. I'm not in touch with him. Um, but, uh, you know, we follow each other on social media uh, handles. And he's an inspiration. What a, what a perfect, you know, amazing human being. And I am in touch with, uh, with most of my um, Project Runway family contestants, including Mondo. Um, you know, we, we do follow each other on social media and appreciate each other's work. And they're such, such uh, excellent, inspiring, talented uh, Project Runway uh, contestants out there. Um, with the production team, yes, you know, with, I'd, like there were so many people involved with the show and they're all great people at the end of the day. So, yeah. Okay, now here's a question I really have to ask. What was it like shopping at Mood? <laughs> so you know you, you we just get like 30 minutes and you're like oh my god and it's a huge it was I'm, i think it, it, it has changed now it, it's like a multi-story uh, uh store and then you shop around and you have a budget and you have a time constraint so it's it's not as <laughs> much fun as you would want it to be but it, it's uh the, it's a nice store and swatch is amazing too he's cute and lazy <laughs> <laughs> Who was your favorite judge while you were on the show? Oh, I, all of them were so different and fun. Heidi Klum is so fun. She's so cute. She's exactly the way she is, you know, the way you see her on TV. She's extremely fun, honest. Um, I liked her. I, of course, loved her. Nina Garcia, you know, with the kind of experience and, you know, she has such great standing in the fashion world. I loved her too. Um, I found her uh, critiques to be extremely honest bang on and even Zach Posen what what an adorable person you know such a such a nice uh, human being um Zach Posen came with a lot of experience you know he comes with a lot of experience of with fashion and uh, technique so it's it's hard to pick one judge all of them I liked all of them even though they kicked me out <laughs> okay actually since you brought up Nina I have to say that I really liked your film dress for the unconventional challenge. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about Nina? You say you really respect her. Like she loved your dress from episode one. She tore you to pieces from episode two. And then episode three, you were like flying high again. I the I would say episode two, like I remember it in flash and flashes and it wasn't uh, really fun because I didn't want to do work with that material. I wanted to uh, work with, you know, something uh, fun, something colorful. So I first of all, that material was forced on me by uh, my team members. And then whatever I would make, they would be like, no, no, no. And a lot of it is edited, um, you know, when because it's. It's 12 hours of making and then just, you know, one hour of the show in which you probably get 10 minutes. So it wasn't my choice of material. And uh, for a creative person, you know, if, if you don't get your choice of material and even if 
you accept it and you know you're trying to make it work and when your teammates don't are kind of you know don't do it don't do it uh i i don't think that was my best work and uh so i i would take her criticism for it uh i could have done better i i did do uh the best i could given the circumstances but then the judges kind of judge you against your own caliber so i i kind of understand and appreciate her criticism for the dress so did you watch the show before you applied like did you know there was going to be an, an unconventional challenge yeah i didn't practice a lot honestly and i i i can't say that i had seen all the seasons religiously but i had watched the show uh, i was a fan and i knew about unconventional challenges i wish i had uh, kind of practiced more about making things before going on the show but i hadn't so but yeah it was unconventional challenges are extremely fun if you you know start with the right material at the right time and you know you get get a nice vision of of where it needs to go i mean from the fan perspective i've loved all of them when they took them to the grocery store to the christmas tree store i mean you guys going to a movie theater that was pretty novel i mean who thinks you can make a dress out of twizzlers i mean I can and I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> These things are easy to do cuz you know you take your glue gun and you just stick things and kind of make them look interesting. So there's there's a lot of fun and art and creativity in there. I'll remember That's to get some Twizzlers to keep in the idea lab <laughs> <laughs> to offer as a material. I'll keep them next to the glue gun. Be like, "Oh yeah, I feel like wearing some Twizzlers today." <laughs> beach day let's put on a twizzler swimsuit watch out for seagulls don't get you so do you still watch the show then i uh i do sometimes i somehow i'm not able to follow the whole season but i did uh, watch making the cut and they've done a really good job with that then i also watched some of the netflix's um uh show i don't who's next in fashion That was that was really nice too. And I uh, loved that one because they were so nice. They got the designers anything they wanted. They yeah. were like, "Here's your store, and if you don't see it, just tell us and we'll get it for you." And mm. I'm like, "Oh, the poor <laughs> people on Project Runway, they didn't get that." The whole idea cuz uh, I was reading Tan France the host. He was like the first uh, first thing about doing the show was that i don't want it to be bitchy i don't want any drama we we want to want it to be nice and all about creativity and you know promoting a designer and i thought that was such a such a inspiring thing to say and do so all through the show even their critiques they've been very nice about it and that that has that is extremely you know interesting to see That is a good point because we did talk a little bit H and I about season 13. It seemed pretty harsh and it added the twist of bringing back a previous contestant, which seems unfair because Amanda would have automatically had an advantage having gone through the process before. Did you guys feel like that while you were on the show? So honestly, I was asked this question in one of my project runway interviews and I didn't feel that, you know, she had an advantage at that point of time because, you know, 
she was treated the same way we were but looking back i would say emotionally um, and it's very important because you know how well you are feeling emotionally and how well you are able to kind of cope with the the stress it's important and once you've go- gone through it you know how to handle it better and you know how to handle yourself a lot better so now I'll, i can see that how that was a little bit of an advantage for her but when i was on the show i thought she was on the same uh, you know same plane as we were but yeah now now i agree that emotionally uh, there was an advantage for her cuz she was a, a bit of a mess in season 11 and then she was she was like cool all <laughs> collected all calm and collected and she she knew how to handle herself so yeah she'll kill me for saying that though well that's all of the questions that i really had burning i mean i love the show i loved your season you know sometimes my mom and i we watch it together my mom is an old school sewist she actually took pattern drafting classes in high school back in the day so like we admire the skill and the talent that it takes to do these things under this time restraint. Last year we had a frozen program at the library and my mom made me an Anna costume and it you know it took her a good week to get it all fitted correctly and you guys are throwing out these gorgeous dresses in 12 hours. I mean total props here. I really respect you guys' talent. It is so amazing. And really thank you so much for being on this show with us. That's that's really nice of you to say thank you so much. How sweet. Yes, and from the Idea Lab perspective, I can say it's really great to hear, you know, uh it, y- you're you're something of an Idea Lab celebrity. People would see you in there working and they would be so interested in what you're working on. You know, every little thing from the bags to the earrings, uh all your projects on the embroidery machine, uh you inspired other people. uh just by being there and working on your projects and to be able to hear your sort of artistic philosophies and how you feel about fashion uh has been really interesting and I'm glad we had the chance to have this conversation today. Oh I mean I I would have to say Jeff you inspire people. To be honest you're the idea lab celebrity you're so nice you're so welcoming to everyone to everyone's ideas and you you make the whole whole thing come together so So you're the the inspiration in the lab. Well, thanks. Maybe one day we'll be back in there working again. <laughs> well, thank you also for me, Cynthia. I was I was very nervous about having you on cuz I I whenever you see somebody who's doing something that's really um you know, it's it's tough. What you were doing was really challenging and beautiful and creative. And so I just I was I was a little nervous and so I was very excited to see that you were as friendly you know over people people recording as you were as you seemed on TV. And TV you, you just seemed like such a nice, friendly, engaging, warm person. It's like I hope she's like that in real life and you totally were. <laughs> you could ask well, Jeff, you. he knows. Yeah, I could have told you that. About everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much guys. Uh stay safe, stay home. Thanks, Sandia. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, everyone, that's it for this episode of Baldwin Public Library's podcast, People People. And not to be super needy, but if you could be sure to like us, it would be great. 
I don't think there's an I deeply enjoy button or I'm just madly in love with button. So we'll have to settle for liking us for now. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next month to talk about food. Yum, yum, yum. Yeah, we're going to talk about cookbooks and be silly. Thanks for listening, everyone. Be sure to tune in next month for another exciting episode of Beeple People. People.